0: Welcome to the Sourdough Podcast. We are your hosts, Jay and Ashley. We're coming to you from our log cabin studio.
1: Formerly known as our living room.
0: On our farm here in western Montana. Well, we've just returned from our, wow, our first vacation from the farm during peak farm season ever. We were gone for a full four days, which is mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. Thanks, Lily. Yeah, thank you to our amazing farm worker, Lily, for looking after both our dogs and the farm. She did great. But that's an interesting thing to reflect on. This is our fourth season farming. And the best we've done up until this year was sneaking away for a couple overnight river floats where we would water everything heavily, leave around 3 or 4 p.m., get on the river, float, sleep, get up, paddle out, and try to be home by 10 yeah <laughs> a.m. so that we can check everything. We leave the greenhouses open overnight. It wasn't even a
1: full 24 hours. Yeah. We we're getting like 12-hour vacations.
0: Yeah. So this was a feat, and uh, it's pretty exciting.
1: And I feel great this week. Like, I'm, I was ready to work coming back from from the vacation, and I wonder how we can get into a position as farmers in uh, that – we can have some time just to recoup, even if it's just a day or two uh, away from the farm. Mm -hmm. Like if you can have the employees and and give the power to the employees to look after things, you know, maybe things won't get done exactly how you want. Maybe they won't get as done as much as you, you're being there, Mm -hmm. but you're going to be coming back with a whole new outlook on the season after a few months, um, of working extremely hard so yeah
0: totally and I mean for us we had we were up in British Columbia Canada for my brother's wedding and so we had four days off but that first day we were driving we we're on the road for I think 11 hours and then we had two days that were totally just off for fun and for us and then the fourth day was the day driving home getting back in a storm to make sure we closed <laughs> up the greenhouses on time And so really it was, I see it as like two full days off with like two flex days on either (laughs) side. But even that in itself, that stepping away, like physically being off the farm, I think is what the most important part is because we try to take Sunday off and sometimes Sunday, Monday, but we're here. So we're opening, we're closing, we're watering, we get sidetracked, seeing things that aren't growing as well as they should. And you don't fully disconnect and take time away to appreciate coming back to it to see the growth and what has changed. So that was a really cool experience. And I look forward to being able to hopefully do that a little more often, especially as we continue to uh, grow in our career as farmers.
1: Yeah. It's not just the physical aspect of taking a break. It's, it's the mental aspect Mm -hmm. of being away from a place that you are spending Hours and hours and walking miles and miles around—it's like a microcosm of of your world. It can really be a bubble, and just like seeing, just even seeing different landscapes can really be refreshing for the mental. For the mental.
0: Um,
1: <laughs> yeah. Speaking of which, we ran into a uh, longtime farmer here in the Bitterroot. I think he's been farming here now for about forty years. I think so. Uh, and he looked great. I mean. Oh, let me take a step back. (laughs) So he's not really farming. He's not farming commercially this year. Yeah,
0: he retired at the end of last season. So this is last year of uh, commercial, if you will, production. Production.
1: Yeah, but he looked great. I mean, he had color in his face. I mean, I swear to God, there was less wrinkles. His hair started getting browner. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this, this guy looked great. So kudos to him for... Uh, a successful farming career Mm -hmm. and staying with it for the long haul and and getting out at the right you know not the right time but at a time where he can still enjoy a life outside of it
0: Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and it led us to think a little bit about what is it that we as young farmers in our 30s need to be doing right now to increase our longevity in this career to make sure that we are taking care of ourselves physically and mentally in order to make it 30 to 40 years in this career because it's really hard and it's really exhausting and even when things are going really well there's still so much risk and so much physical work that just has to get just has to happen yeah
1: I mean, it's part. Of, it's definitely part of the job, and of course, there's so many different ways we can become more efficient and uh, in order to grow more food. But you know, if you overburden yourself with too much work, if you're if you're looking at your seating plan and designing a seating plan for the season, and it looks like it's gonna be too much work, uh, takes take some stuff off. Like, it's okay to sell out of produce and not have the supply for it, if it means that you get some time off and are able to actually live a life outside mm-hmm. of growing carrots.
0: Yeah. So. Yeah, that's for sure. So, that's that's in our thoughts and we hope anyone out there that is a fellow farmer gives some consideration to that too and thinks now about their present life and situation and what they can do to increase the likelihood of lasting in a career farming while coming out on the other end healthy and ready for a life in retirement where you maybe just get to grow food for your, yourself and your family and travel mm-hmm. or whatever it is you choose to do. That sounds but ideal. That sounds great. Um, <laughs> we're almost there, right? Yep. Maybe <laughs> uh, next year. So our inspiration for today's episode came from our recent trip up to the Okanagan, which is where I grew up in a town called Vernon in British, British Columbia. Columbia. Yeah. Uh, for those of you that don't know The Canadian provinces it is the most western most southwestern uh, in the country and uh, yeah so we during our short stay there we went on a walk in the big city in, in downtown Kelowna which is where my sister lives and we started to make some interesting observations about home gardens yeah and so that led us to start to question, I guess the idea of home gardening. There are so many people that garden at home or try to, and a lot of people that want to, a lot of people that want to learn, but maybe don't. But what we observed, and this is just in a particular neighborhood, but we've seen it throughout our travels. um, A lot of people have these gardens But things are so unhealthy. There are a lot of failed crops. There's a lot of things that are overgrown, things that are bolting, maybe poorly interplanted together because it seemed like (laughs) a good idea. Things that are really oddly spaced, like people not giving consideration to how much you can fit per square foot in your garden. And even my sister's own garden, and no diss to you, Steph, if you're listening, (laughs) (laughs) Um, her own garden was quite... Overgrown, and there were tiny little carrots trying to grow underneath a bunch of weeds, the lamb's lambs quarter. quarter. And um, she just brushed it off and allotted it or counted it toward um, just it's just not happening this year, yeah. And I think a lot of people have that same perspective because they're like, well whatever. I, I like growing stuff, but if it doesn't work out, it's fine. That's why there's farmers. Yeah, And in a sense, I guess that's great for us because it does mean people will come to us if their gardens don't work out. But at the end of the day, with where we are in our current food system, we do need a lot more people learning those skills yeah. for how to grow food.
1: <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, the way I look at it is they really are just into planting, not necessarily gardening. You know, they, they build their raised bed and and these people, you know, maybe put in some potting soil that's just peat moss that they get in, you know, two cubic foot bags at the, the local hardware store or whatever. And then they plant some, you know, pretty terrible looking starts they get from a local nursery into it, water it a little bit and think, you know, that they're going to get a crop out of it. And maybe the first year you might get a bit of a crop, but if you're not amending that soil, if you're not... Um, paying close attention to the plants and what they're telling you, their growth rates, their colors, the bug infestations or lack thereof, you're just not going to get a um, you're not going to have a successful garden. And the whole point of this is to be able to produce more food at home to reduce the costs of going to the grocery store. Everybody out there has been to grocery stores now, and you know there's a, some pretty terrible looking ca- bunches of carrots for six dollars or more. Mm-hmm. And there's like maybe three baby carrots with some moldy leaves on them. And and that's just not going to be a sustainable food system for the long haul as we get more people into this world, as more people are born into this world, and we have less and less access to fresh produce. And so we want to try and one of the missions here at uh, the Saturday podcast is to try and get more people interested and more people educated, on actually gardening to produce food for their families. You'd be amazed at a 200 square foot garden, how much food you can actually grow uh, for your family and Mm -hmm. friends. And so that's basically what we're going to be talking about today is, you know, what a farmer would do in a home garden, what are the things we would pay attention to, how we would plant, maybe even we can talk about spacing. I'm, I'm not sure if we'll get to that today, but just trying to get a a good basis for anybody out there listening um, to try and uh, maybe get more attuned with their their plants. Yeah,
0: and just actually have successful crops. Mm -hmm. If you're going to put in that work at the forefront of the season, you may as well do what you can to see it through so that you can actually get some healthy food from your efforts. Yeah.
1: I mean, there's plenty of memes out there that say like after whatever $540 of of supplies and seeds and stuff they got a $2 tomato out of it and if you're invested if you invested $500 into a home garden or if a farmer invested $500 into a home garden we would be getting thousands of dollars out of it mm-hmm. and so we want people to be doing this at home
0: mhm
1: so where should we start
0: um well why don't we start with start with starts let's start so with so we had an interesting observation at a nursery up in canada and we were just walking through looking at all the beautiful flower starts and then we got to their little produce start section and we were appalled yeah by the quality of the tomato starts that they were selling and they weren't that cheap i think they were on sale for like 20 dollars or 23 dollars or something well
1: first of all they were plant these tomatoes were planted into hanging baskets and a tomato is not fit for to grow out of a hanging basket you might get 2 dollars worth of tomatoes if- mm-hmm. after that 25 dollar investment but you're it's just, it's just not fit. There's not enough space mm-hmm. for those roots to go and search for food and water out there. Yeah. I mean, tomatoes require, and we'll talk about this, but there are light feeders and heavy feeders of various crops, and and tomatoes need so much nutrition and so much water. I'm always amazed, year after year, at how much we can, how much we can feed our tomatoes, and how much quicker they'll grow after doing so. Mm-hmm. It really is, you know, it's not always, but it really is the more you put on, the better. Yeah, yeah, To a certain extent. And it can
0: make a visible difference within a day. It can. Uh, But anyway, so... (coughs) Excuse me. Starts. Seeing these tomatoes made us think a lot about what is it that is potentially setting up home gardeners to fail? And we were like, well, here's (laughs) an example right here. A nursery selling starts that are already root-bound, so have run out of space in the little pots for the roots to go anywhere else. They were already fruiting, And in turn, the leaves were beginning to die because there was not enough food and they're putting all the energy into the fruit and it was just not a viable plant. Anyone that spent the $20 to take that home and plant it, likely they weren't going to get much out of it. Well, it was a hanging basket even. They they had both. They 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 had some hanging baskets and they had some in small planters, some in larger planter um, boxes. Yeah. And so I think it would be a good place to start just talking a little bit about what what to look for yeah. in, in a I healthy mean, start when you're uh, at a nursery or buying, or even when you're growing your own.
1: Yeah. I mean, ideally, people would start um, growing their own transplants. Um, and some, some crops you just, just can't transplant. You know, like carrots just don't transplant, parsnips, et cetera. Um, but if, so if I was a farmer and I was going to a gardening center and I was looking around at their produce starts and wanted to choose the best ones, um, first of all, it's not always the biggest ones that are necessarily the best. Um, sometimes there can be. Less roots um, than the actual shoots, meaning the top part of the plant where all the leaves are. So what I would do is I would actually pinch out one of the starts from their plastic uh, cell tray and take a look at the the actual roots. Mm-hmm. And for most crops out there, those roots should be a healthy white, you know, maybe an off white, but pretty healthy and and almost fully enveloped around the the root ball or the root or excuse me, the soil that is in that cell. And so that's the first thing I'd be looking at. Another thing I'd be looking at is the color. So if if any produce starts have yellowing leaves, um, those are just not going to be great for for you. And, and why this is so important to choose right starts and to transplant right starts is because if you don't, that crop will have a significant disadvantage when it comes to protecting itself from pests from viruses, but it also won't get to its full genetic potential, meaning size. If that if that cauliflower, for example, has been root bound for even a week extra than it should, that'll produce a smaller cauliflower when it comes to harvest. So make sure you can even ask the people and if uh, excuse me, ask the people when these seeds were, were planted into those starts. Mm-hmm. And if they don't know, you know, you might want to move on. Um, but I mean, you can make educated guesses on that, looking at the the root ball and also the, the color of the leaves, but what would you look for outside of those two?
0: Yeah, I would say those both along with the size of it. Mm-hmm. Typically, if you're getting something to take home and transplant out into your garden, you're not going to want to be buying like the tomato example, a tomato that's already like full of Fruiting. fruit, Especially if those leaves are looking pale and yellow and discolored. Mm -hmm. But you want something that's younger that you see is maybe starting to bud. And I even look for the same when buying flower starts because I don't want to buy flowers that have already bloomed. I want to take something home that I see has deep green leaves, very little flowers. Yeah, is more of like a stout plant rather than too elongated because perhaps it didn't have. Um, the appropriate type of light when it started if it's or too spacing. stringy and long yeah or spacing yeah. and um, yeah I like to take something home that I see the potential for it to continue growing I don't want to take something home that I'm going to plant and just watch the bloomed flowers Duh. die mm-hmm. within a week and then it's done yeah um,
1: that's a good point point. and when it comes to crops that fruit so things like cucumbers and tomatoes and even Winter and summer squash, um, trying to think what else you would probably, peppers, eggplant, things like that. If there's already fruits on those and they're still in their root cells, those are not good starts. They've been there for way too long. In fact, as a farmer um, that you know we grow all of our own um, starts in our nursery, we actually pull off the flowers of tomato plants if they're still in their root cell or they're, if they're still in their pots. And it was interesting when we were selling tomato starts at the farmer's market, I would hear multiple people commenting on like, oh, they actually still have, uh, there's some tomatoes on, on those starts. And I just, I had forgot to, to snip off those, um, those clusters, but that's actually not a good thing to look for mm-hmm. really. You know, tomatoes shouldn't be, depending on the size, but they shouldn't be in a root cell or a, a tray or a pot for longer than 45 days or 50 days before transplanting out into wherever it's going to live, meaning a a raised garden bed or in the field. So,
0: yeah. So really overall, if you're buying starts, just look for something that looks full of life. That's not already fruiting Mm -hmm. unless it's in a big pot and you're, you could look at it and think, okay, there's a lot of food for this pepper plant to continue feeding mm-hmm. so it's probably okay that it's starting to fruit mm-hmm. but if it's just teeny tiny and all that energy is going into the fruit instead of the plant itself steer clear
1: yeah yeah and if you see any dead leaves that are like you know dry brown and decaying back from itself those are older starts so just don't use those i mean just really just look at them mm-hmm. <laughs> to sum up this entire conversation yeah are they healthy or not um, well, should we move on? Yeah. Well, so at home, you know, starting seeds is, is a great way to save money. Um, and like I said before, there's a lot of plants that, um, just don't like to be transplanted out. Either their, their roots are very sensitive or they, pr- they put, uh, put down some really intense tap roots like carrots, for example, that just can't, you know, if you want to get a nice straight carrot, you just can't transplant it out. Um, side note, carrots, that taproot, you know, that taproot within the first three to four weeks of that plant's life is all the way down to the size of that carrot. So where that carrot, you know, say if that carrot's going to be a 10-inch long carrot, that taproot's all the way down past 10 inches. So that's why it's so important to not transplant these things out. But you can direct seed them, but you have to look at the packets. So a carrot doesn't like to be buried in an in a inch of soil. It likes to be, you know, maybe no more than a quarter to eighth of an inch under the soil so that's a light you know really light dusting of soil on top of them it's really hard to talk about how to do transfers you know how to seed mm-hmm. in a podcast so yeah i think that'll come video. when we have videos live and yeah.
0: mm-hmm. um, we can go over some more specific demos- demonstrations. demonstrations. um but yeah maybe maybe that's a good segue into oh i'm just watching a hummingbird feeding Outside on <laughs> our patio at the nasturtiums. Mm-hmm. How nice. Um But anyway, thinking about the carrots and that deep taproot, I think that'd be a good segue into top, talking a little bit about the farmer's opinion of at-home gardening and specifically talking a little bit about raised garden beds versus having rows and or a garden plot, yeah. if you will. Because I was thinking when you're talking about that deep taproot on that carrot, I was thinking about people that have raised garden beds and they line it with something in the bottom to try to prevent any weeds from growing through and they just pour whatever bags of potting soil into it it seems like it could be challenging to get the best produced produce
1: (laughs) (laughs) for sure and so you know I kind of harp on raised garden beds a lot, and they do have their benefits for people who are, you know, handicapped or have really trouble getting down to the ground. Or, I mean, if you're literally have a house on bedrock and there's no soil on it, you'll have to have a raised garden bed if you want any type of um, produce grown at home. But from a farmer's opinion, you know, raised garden beds are just not fit for, in my opinion at least, is not fit for Like large scale production at home, if you will, you know this isn't unless you spend thousands and thousands of of dollars on cedar planks, and I mean thousands of dollars Mm. on cedar planks. You're not going to get enough square footage to really make a big dent in your grocery bill uh, for a family of four, and that's why as a farmer, I would highly recommend just you know taking a part of your lawn, even if it's just a few hundred square feet, um, preferably more towards like 800 to 1,000 square feet for a family of four. And just mark that off and cover it, you know, with a, if you can, a, a UV treated silage tarp to kill all of those the grass that's in your in your lawn, and then form rows. So we use thirty inch beds. You can use whatever width bed you want, but because of the, the all the implements that we have on our BCS and other um, tools, we have chosen a thirty inch wide bed. And ours are 50 foot long, you know, of course, for a family at home, I would recommend something like 20 or 25 feet long. but a 25 foot long by 30 inch wide bed will give you, let's see 60 to 80 bunches of carrots or about 60 to 80 pounds of, of carrots um, at home. And that's just one rotation. You can get two to three rotations on a single garden plot or garden bed per year. So just think about how much. M- how much produce you can actually grow Mm -hmm. with that in mind.
0: Yeah. And that then sets you up to have storage carrots Mm -hmm. for the fall and winter to have some for preserving, fermenting, whatever it is you do with them. Yep. Um, So
1: why the raised garden beds are not great in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. So this, the soil is both a, a heat sink, but also a place where um, during intense periods of, of heat, there's actually cool cool air, if you will, in that soil. It can actually cool the air around your crops. And um, when you get to a point where the temperature of the soil is above the temperature of the air, it can actually signif- significantly affect nutrient uptake in the plants and it can dry things out all the more quicker as well and so that's another reason why garden beds are pretty terrible is because just the water holding capacity of them can be downright abysmal from my opinion you might excuse me i just burp you <laughs> might think that uh you know you have enough water for that tomato in the raised garden garden bed but You're going to have to water that thing at least once a day, if not twice a day, to actually give it the amount of nutrition and water that it requires for Mm -hmm. getting, say, 10 to 20 pounds of tomatoes per plant.
0: Yeah. So really, people can end up creating much more work for themselves Mm -hmm. by having those shallow raised beds Mm -hmm. or whatever, any raised beds, than if they were just to plant directly into the soil and work on building soil beds up.
1: Yeah, for sure. And with that extra drying of those raised garden beds, they're going to have to put more and more water in. And and there are various nutrients out out or in our soils that are water soluble. So that means the more you water and the more that water leaches down away from that raised garden bed, the least, the less amount of nutrition is going to be in that, in that bed. So that's another reason why that I wouldn't use a raised garden bed at home.
0: Mm-hmm. That makes sense.
1: Not only that, but there's also in the subsoils of our actual soil that's on planet Earth, there's a lot more micronutrients um, down in the subsoil than people might think. And there are various crops out there, especially perennials, that can literally pull those micronutrients from their, you know, four to 10 foot uh, deep tap roots, pull those micronutrients up into their leaves and bring that nutrition back up to the surface for your annuals to use Mm -hmm. and so that's why for a lot of people who you know um, follow permaculture it's called chop and drop and they use things like comfrey or whatever whatever other plants that have these really deep top roots as a form of mulch around um other other crops so another reason why
0: clever (laughs) um Well, even within that little segment, we were back on the topic of tomatoes and we're reaching that time of year where we have more and more customers coming to us asking us if our peas are growing yet because theirs still aren't or how our beans are doing because theirs aren't growing or if we have any tomatoes yet because their plants are still tiny. And we wanted to talk a bit about some specific things that you can do, whether you're an at home gardener or a farmer, uh, but what you want to be doing to prepare your soil for transplanting, but then also what you can watch for and do to make sure your plants are staying healthy so that you do get a harvest from them.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, get a soil test. I mean, I'm beating a dead horse here, mm-hmm. but
0: that really is step one.
1: It is step one, is you know, especially if you're breaking ground on a new on a lawn and you want to you know build a your first garden plot. Um, you need to go online and learn how to get uh, how to take a soil test properly, and then send it to a, your local extension office or there's a, um, numerous um, private laboratories you can send your your soil to but just get a basic rundown of of all of the main micro macro and micronutrients and Mm -hmm. i mean i could list them off but you know that there should be a definitely npk so that's nitrogen phosphorus and potassium and then you want to see your your calcium your magnesium um your sulfur your boron um your manganese uh sodium sodium levels because well i mean Sodium too too high of sodium can actually be a problem for mm-hmm. crops but um, trying to think what else that a uh, good soil test would have. Mm, Let's see have copper pH also yeah I would have right? the pH and the cation exchange capacity of your soil yeah. meaning how well it bonds to ca- cations um, We're probably iron we're yeah, probably missing some yeah. more but it should have you more get than the just idea. <laughs> it should have more than just npk yeah so
0: and we like to use midwest labs and i know we've put the link in uh, our show notes in the past when we've talked about soil sampling but at least for us here in montana it's been really helpful uh, they're great because you can get like you can phone in and someone will explain the results to you and what it may mean and what you need to do and so that's been really valuable also yeah and um yeah just so that soil test will give you a baseline to know what you're working with and from there with our help or with your own internet searching or through whatever laboratory you use you'll be able to figure out what sort of amendments, compost, and or fertilizer you're going to want to put in that soil before you even start planting into it. Correct. And of course, you can just dig up dig up your lawn and throw some dirt down and try to grow and see what happens. And maybe you'll have success with some things, but you might have a lot of failure with others.
1: Yeah. Because most, most of the time or most of our soils around this country, unless you're lucky, have a lot of things missing in them. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, Oh, there's two that I forgot, but zinc is a really important one, but then also organic matter Mm -hmm. is something that I, we forgot to touch upon. And, and the, the organic or percent, the percentage of organic matter in your soil is gonna have a big effect on how much that soil can hold on to both water, but also all of the micro and macronutrients that your your plants need. It also provides great food and habitat for all of the microorganisms that are literally feeding your plants. The microorganisms are the ones that solubilize nutrients in your soil that then can be uptaken by your plants. So it's not just about putting soil or putting potting soil into a raised garden bed and think you're gardening. You really have to take into the into consideration the ecosystem that is happening underneath the ground that provides the the um the, the not the situation but the opportunity for these plants to grow um so say if your organic matter is like below three percent you're definitely going to want to be adding compost to your garden plots you know your target is going to be a good a good Um, a good agricultural soil, um, for produce specifically is going to be between five and 7%. Uh, at that, at that point, you're going to have a lot less amending to be doing because if you have a really sandy soil and you have really low organic matter and you have really low clay in your soil, first of all, your cation exchange capacity is going to be below 10 and that is not going to hold on to these soluble nutrients that we've been talking about those are gonna leach so quickly through all of that um that sandy soil down into an area where your plants can't reach those um nutrients and then they're become become deficient. You're starting to, get to see you're gonna start seeing yellowing of the leaves. You're not gonna see plants, you know, getting big and bulky mm-hmm. and growing really fast. If your plants at this time of year in the northern hemisphere are not growing extremely fast, you're doing something wrong. The, like, we can look at a tomato plant and see the daily change in its size. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's that quick. It can yeah. happen. I mean, they're growing probably two to three inches a day at this yeah. point.
0: And on the contrary, the parts of our farm that are lacking... Specific nutrients, and that we're still struggling with. We see the opposite. Yeah, we see things not growing on the daily, which is always worrisome this exactly. time of year for farmers that are trying to make their living off of this food. <laughs> no, it's
1: a good point. Yeah, I mean, I can just think of the carrots in in plot eight mm-hmm. for us, for example. Those have taken forever to come to um, to a, a harvestable harvestable size, mm-hmm. but that's because we've had problems in that plot in the past, and we're continuing to have continuing to have problems. In that plot right now, so yeah, it's a really good point.
0: Yeah. So, um, step one: soil test. Mm-hmm. Uh, at some point in the future, we'll share a video as well of how you can do a really easy at-home test to figure out the clay content of your soil.
1: Well, sand, clay, and, and silt. Yeah, sand, clay, yeah.
0: and silt. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's. It's really. just a composition test. Yeah. 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 And so that's, not, we'll, we'll talk about that in the future. I don't think this is a time to dive into that. No. Um, but I'm just thinking moving forward to uh, what would be beneficial to our listeners mm-hmm. and perhaps having at some point in time, um, we can organize something so that people can send in soil sample results to the, to us and we can do like a live episode where we just go through each one say what they mean and what would we do and what we would do and it'll give many people just like a baseline like okay if my organic matter is low i can start by adding this much compost or this type of compost but anyway just just a thought for down the road because that'd be a lot of fun uh to be able to help some of our listeners improve their gardens um just through the simplicity of reading and analyzing soil samples
1: yeah And the thing about analyzing soil and trying to balance and amend your soil to a place where your crops grow really well is extremely challenging. Mm -hmm. There's farmers out there that hire agronomists to do that stuff for them because it is a really complicated chemical um, and physical analysis and biological analysis of your soil. Mm -hmm. And it takes years to really truly understand. I mean, We've read thousands of pages of both books and articles to try and better understand how crops grow and how soil, uh, how to optimize your your soil health. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if you don't get it right the first time, like, welcome to the club. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. and not all soil is created equal (laughs) no even just here i mean there's many factors but even just here in the Bitterroot valley of montana there is so much variance from the east side to the west side to the north to the south depending which drainage you're coming out of and what sort of deposition there was over the past many 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 years Mm -hmm. from the different creeks and rivers that have flowed through here
1: and the in the the raising and draining of a lake, Missoula.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
1: I don't know if people, everybody, anybody know, or how many people know about this. If you're in Montana or Western Montana, you probably know about this. But there used to be this giant lake called Lake Missoula that had its fingers up the Bitterroot Valley, up the Clark Fork, um, really up the five valleys of Western Montana and into Idaho. And um, supposedly, at some point, that would um, that that uh, there was an ice dam kind of northwest from here and that burst at one point and drained this whole area and there's silt depositions that we see all over the the Bitterroot valley both from the Bitterroot river but also from what i would consider the the the, the lake
0: mm-hmm. yeah yeah and you see all sorts of crazy glacial features throughout montana mm-hmm. also throughout this part of montana yeah. um n- n- now i got excited about glaciers i forget what we were actually talking about um we're talking about yes. trying to amend soil yeah, yeah yeah so just always keep in mind that what one person had to deal with and do for their soil isn't necessarily going to be what you have to do and deal with you can think about the past generations and who was on that land before you if it was taken care of if it was left um there was not coming to my mind right now empty just dirt yeah with uh, no life in it yeah with no life in it fallow fallow it'll be a little more a lot more work (laughs) Mm -hmm. to get it back and uh living again compared to someone who's maybe moving on to land that's been used to grow alfalfa or hay or beets or whatever year after year after year because that's at least had some activity and some farmers
1: likely analyzing as and trying to mend it the Mm -hmm. best they can yeah. Um, it's one thing that that home gardeners can do. That's a really safe thing to recommend, really to almost everybody out there who wants to farm, is to um, either make your own or acquire good compost. Mm-hmm. Compost is not just a fertilizer; it's actually pretty, usually pretty low um, in um, various nutrients. It's it's more so a soil conditioner. So say, for example, you you go out to the backyard and you put a spade into the ground and then you just hear, donk, and mm-hmm. it's not a rock. You have a really tight, tight soil. And if you think about it, the tighter that soil, the tighter that pan that's on the top of the soil, the less water infiltration and less oxygen that is getting into that, that soil so that microbial life can be alive. Now, remember, microorganisms in the soil, both fungi and bacteria are the ones that are feeding your plants. You're not feeding them your plants fertilizer. You're feeding fertilizer to the micro, usually, unless they're extremely soluble, but you're feeding fertilizer to the bacteria that then are able to break that down and solubilize the nutrients that then the plant takes up. So if you are not creating an environment that the bacteria can live in, you're not going to have healthy plants in return Mm -hmm. in general yeah and so, when you have a really tight soil, there's a number of things that could be happening, and so it's gonna really difficult to just give a blanket statement as far as what to do. Mm-hmm. but one thing that you can definitely do is to place and put compost um on top of your um garden beds or at least mix it into the top couple inches mm-hmm. to help break up that hard pan that is there. Compost should have some bigger. Um, molecules called humic, um, it's called humic acid, but these things bind to an insane amount of, of cations and hold on to those nutrients that are, are water-soluble that your plant can then uptake from that specific molecule. And humic acid is found in compost.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So someone builds their garden, digs up digs up their yard to put their garden in, They've added some compost. They are now ready to transplant some super healthy starts into that soil. That soil is looking pretty good for the sake of this conversation. And they're going to do some direct seeding. So let's talk a little bit about what plants need and when. And then what people can look for to start to observe some nutritional deficiencies. Yeah.
1: Well, first of all, the smaller the plant, the less nutrition it generally needs, right? You know, a rhubarb is going to need a, a much, many more. God, I can't talk right now. Much more nutrients than, say, a small carrot. And so, depending on the the stage of growth that your plant is in, it's going to need both different amounts of nutrients, um, in in both quantity but also percentage. So, for example a tomato that's 30 days old is going to need you know in a ratio a lot more nitrogen and um, potassium than phosphorus but as that plant gets bigger and bigger and bigger the, all those ratios are going to start changing and, and it gets a little complicated but basically the smaller the plant the less nutrition it needs and the, the larger a plant the more nutrition it needs it's pretty simple mm-hmm. um but there are various crops out there that require a lot more of the macros like nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium um, than others. And so we we basically farmers put um, crops into two different categories, and those are heavy feeders and light feeders. Light feeders are going to think be things like carrots and some greens, maybe radish, peas, um, even things like green onion. Uh, and the heavy feeder is going to be more like your squashes, your tomatoes, your eggplants, your okra, your rhubarb, your corn. You know, these are big plants that take a lot of, that require a lot of nutrition from the soil in order to reach full maturity. Maturity. Um, and so towards the, in the vegetative stage, there's a lot of, of cellular division happening And so that plant is going to need both calcium and boron, but also nitrogen and potassium. Um, But as that, say for a tomato, for example, as that tomato starts to go from their vegetative stage to their reproductive stage, and how we differentiate those two is basically just think about about it as before fruit are developing, and then after the fruit or, or during the development of those fruit are... The vegetative and reproductive stage. Um, as that tomato enters into the the reproductive stage and starts fruiting, the you'd be amazed at how much nitrogen and potassium um, fruits actually need. I'll actually pull up this um, this article right here. So, the composition of an actual tomato plant. So actually, the leaves and the stem and everything like that. Um, is about 39% potassium and 25% nitrogen and 25% calcium. But the elemental composition of a tomato fruit is 57% potassium, 29% nitrogen, and only 6% calcium. So calcium makes up the building blocks of cell walls, cell walls, along with a couple other nutrients that we won't get into, or uh, um, elements, excuse me. And so you can just think about as that tomato, the, the cells are, are replicating and differentiating, there's a lot of calcium to basically build all of those walls that, dif- that differentiate the cells of that plant. But that tomato fruit is going to need a lot less calcium comparatively than the actual structure of the plant. Um, but your money mineral, your, your mineral, the mineral that is most important for the biggest fruits if, if your plant that you're growing as a fruit is potassium. So as that plant goes into its reproductive stage, you're going to start needing to actually adding more nitrogen and potassium and less phosphorus as it enters maturity and starts giving you what you want to eat.
0: And so what does that mean when you say you're going to have to give them more potassium? What does that look like yeah. for someone that's growing at home? And this can always apply to farmers. It's just going to be on a different scale. So you're going to be looking at different solutions for application. Mm-hmm. But for the at-home farmer, or the at-home gardener, I mean, that wants those tomatoes to grow big and healthy, they've listened to this and they know they're going to need more food than what that base soil they put in their bed can provide. What does that look like for them to add potassium?
1: Well, there's... there's- a hundred thousand different fertilizers out there that you can choose from look for K K is the elemental. Um, what is it called? The name, the, the
0: element. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, and that represents potassium. So if you go out to your, uh, a store, look online and it says NPK, you don't want something that says 15 one, one, because that's 15% nitrogen, 1% phosphorus and 1% potassium. You want something that's either more balanced or that actually errs on the side of nitrogen and potassium. So I would look for something that's like 514 or seven 7214 or whatever. Like You want to have a much higher percentage of that potassium and nitrogen mm-hmm. as it enters the reproductive stage. During the vegetative stage, though, I you, it needs a lot less potassium. So I'd look for something that's like 1511 or maybe 1533 okay. is something that would be a really, you know... And I don't know what you're looking at when you go to the garden store. So learn what NPK is and what those numbers mean so that you can actually have a basis of what to look for out there. Mm -hmm. If you burn fire uh, to heat your house in the winter, save all that wood ash because all of the white that you see in ash is pure elemental potassium. And that stuff is super potent. So you actually want to mix that, say, with compost that you buy or make so that you aren't burning your plants. Because Mm -hmm. if you put too much potassium in the soil, it it can certainly cause a lot of issues. Mm -hmm. So just be careful.
0: Yeah. Uh, And that being said, too, I've read that banana peels also are a good source of potassium, which could be doable at a small scale. But I do think an important point to make and clarify for someone that's maybe very new to gardening is how you apply this so you buy your fertilizer or you use your banana peels Well, like your... how
1: would you even use a banana peel though i don't understand that one well
0: it's uh, same as how would you even use a fertilizer do you spray it on the sp- plant do you sprinkle it on the plant well, do you like f- slap the plant with the banana peel i don't <laughs> maybe yeah that's just um no i i've read that if you put the banana peels into your at-home compost so they begin to break down and then incorporate yeah, that I... into your soil but anyway, to take a step back, um, what I would like to share with our listeners is the application. So there are different options for applying particular amendments to your garden. Yeah, there are things that are like foliar sprays where you are- don't
1: eat. Like we're don't we're just talking about the home gardener. Like they're not foliar spraying yet. Okay, we don't need to talk about foliar spraying.
0: Okay, yeah. So fertilizer that you're adding. So you just read the bottle whatever it says you do. It and depends pour if it it, into the it soil. depends,
1: right? So there are many fertilizers out there that you have to mix into the top of your soil and you you can either um, you know, it's called side dressing, you put the the fertilizer on the side of the the plant and that and water it in and that'll eventually break down and then feed your bacteria that then in turn feed your plants. Or it's water soluble solutions that you put in, you mix with water at a certain ratio, and then you water it in next to your plants. And those are basically the two ways that the at home gardener is going to fertilize.
0: Perfect. That's what I was wanting to explain. Because although most people are capable of reading a label, those that are listening and trying to learn from this podcast, I want them to have an idea of okay, I'm going to go find this fertilizer that is high in potassium, and then I can expect to either have to mix it in water and pour it at the base of the soil mm-hmm. or stir it directly into the soil. Yeah. So I think that's good information to share.
1: But that's just for your macronutrients that we're talking about right now, which is NPK. You you can add fertile NPK to your grazed garden bed and still not get much of a difference in growth rate of your plants because it might be lacking some really key elements um, for plant growth. Like calcium, for example. I mean, if you over-apply potassium it can it can inhibit it, or excuse me if you overapply phosphorus into your soil it can bind to all of the calcium that's in your soil and inhibit the uptake of calcium and then your plant you know rots out at its core or produces blossom end rot or has uh, I think what bitter pit in um in, in apples and just it is you won't get good results so it's not just about those macronutrients that everyone talks about it's also about the micronutrients that are required for for plant growth that, you know, if the MPK doesn't fix your problem, that you might have to then turn to. And that's why a soil test makes things way less confusing when you are getting ready to apply fertilizers and amendments to help balance and fertilize your plants. Balance the soil, excuse me, and fertilize the plants.
0: Okay. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot of information to take in to uh apply to your at home gardens. if you're a farmer, you're probably doing a lot more research and analyzing your own soil tests much closer than if you're just trying to grow food at home um but I think people at home should pay almost
1: as much attention to what they're doing if they want to really grow food Mm -hmm. for their families, because you're a small farmer, that's what you are just because farmers grow more doesn't mean that the practices and the methods are any different. Really? Mm -hmm. We might have a bigger tractor, We might have a tractor, but it's the same principles. Plants Mm -hmm. need exactly what they need to produce the most return on your investments. So like if you're going to farm or if you're going to garden at home and you really want to like actually eat that food and like, provide yourself with better nutrition than the stuff you get the grocery store, you're actually going to have to spend some time really understanding what plants need. It's not just, you know, going to your local store and buying a $500 raised bed, buying $200 worth of soil and expect you're going to get a good return on your investment. Like if you're ready to homestead and you're ready to grow food for your family, you need to put the, the amount of time that it takes to figure it out.
0: Yeah, it's a science. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: And it's just amazing when we were walking through Kelowna. I mean, I, I there was a once area or one uh excuse me, house that had like six garden beds and it looked like shit. I mean, they probably spent $4,000 on those <laughs> garden beds put together and they probably gave up because they're not putting the time into it to figure out what they need to do. Mm-hmm. They just like I said, they think that just putting some soil in a raised garden bed is going to feed them, but it's not. Mm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh well, maybe that's this is a good time then to dive a little bit into identifying some nutritional deficiencies. Mm-hmm. And what people can look for and obviously we can't go super in depth because it's going to be so variable from garden to garden and farm to farm, but just perhaps we can go over a little bit of what we see and how we've how you've learned through your research to have a pretty decent initial judgment that there's something wrong with your plant to start with
1: (laughs) if there's yellowing leaves you got a problem and there's so many different elements that um, can affect plants ability to either keep chlorophyll alive or produce chlorophyll in order to you know have that green pigment now not all crops have green in their leaves like purple cabbage for example Mm -hmm. are purple so you're not going to find a really green leaf on a purple cabbage but um there are certain aspects of both the morphology so how the plant looks versus the um um the what's the oh my god the the genetics of the plant so some plants are just like Are just going to be different from other plants. For example, we have two varieties of peas right now. One of them is like seven feet tall right now, and the other is four feet tall. But we know we're not looking at that. Being like, why are the other ones so small? We just know that those plants don't grow as tall. A cherry tomato can grow twenty feet long, and a German Johnson tomato is going to grow eight feet tall. So we, you know, there's just differences in genetics. But you know, if a again, a tomato, for example, because everybody grows tomatoes. So it's really a great case study for mm-hmm. understanding um, nutritional deficiencies. Mm-hmm. but if if that if that tomato leaf is has, and we talked about this in, in previous podcasts, but has intervenal modeling. so it has like yellowing, chlorosis, yellowing in between the veins of the plant. It could be a, a number of things, but it's probably going to be either m- uh, manganese. Magnesium or potassium, um, for the most part, um, could be sulfur, but sulfur is more kind of like a generalized complete yellowing, including the vein, including the veins of the plant. But so if you see intervenal chlorosis, so like the modeling, you can you can probably it's going to be like I said either magnesium, manganese or potassium. Now if you're seeing like the, the yellowing coming in from the sides of like the marginal uh, margins of the leaves that's probably going to be your potassium um, or ma- or magnesium definitely not manganese because manganese is just like a, a widespread interveinal um, chlorosis now certain crops or certain elements are much more soluble and are able to move through or move from one place of the plant to the other. So if there's a deficiency of main or of magnesium, for example, that's a pretty um, uh, what's the term? Like movable or it's it's able to mobile. move mobile. Mm-hmm. Thank you. It's much more mobile plant. Oh my god, mobile element in the plant. So you're going to find that interveinal towards the bottom or the, of the plant or the lowest leaves on that tomato. Now, say. You well we talked about the apical meristem right before, but just to refresh, so so that's the growth node of the plant towards the top of the plant where basically new leaves come from, where the small leaves are coming out of. If that is 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 yellow, um, it's probably going to be a sulfur issue, or you know it could be any number of things, but it's probably going to be a lack of sulfur. And sulfur is really really important. It's not super mobile in the plant. But nitrogen is extremely mobile in the plant. So if it's a generalized yellowing of the leaves from the ground up, but your growth node, that apical meristem, the leaves around it are still quite green, that looks like it's going to be a, a nitrogen deficiency. Now if your tomato plant has really, really thin, a really, really thin stem with you know pretty small leaves and um, and uh, petioles. That's probably going to be a phosphorus issue because phosphorus is super important for, um, was it the um, I'm blanking right now? What's it called <laughs> for the development of enzymes? Uh, I believe. But either way, it's gonna it's gonna have a bit it's gonna have really thin, spindly growth if it's if it's a problem with phosphorus. And your tomato plant is generally gonna have like like purpling of the leaves on the underside, and you might even be able to see it on top.
0: So I was just pulled up here. Uh, it says phosphorus in plants is key in capturing, capturing, storing, and converting the sun's energy into biomolecules such as ATP that drive biochemical reactions. Yeah, photosynthesis yeah. from germination through the formation to maturity.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and phosphorus also helps root elongation for that reason. Mm-hmm. So applying phosphorus in small quantities you don't need a ton of it right away but in small quantities when your direct seeding or seeding starts is really good because it helps stimulate root elongation the growth and that's what really what you're looking for
0: excuse me
1: um i mean we, we could go through so many different deficiencies it's, it might get kind of boring yeah honestly yeah and
0: we've talked a little bit about it before um and i think you've now touched on some of the most common things mm-hmm. we see, and I think it maybe be interesting if you could give like a brief summary of what your schedule has looked like for the tomatoes this year, because our tomatoes are finally. We've been dealing with some really poor soil in this greenhouse, but our tomatoes this year are looking the best they've ever looked Mm -hmm. and jay has worked extremely hard to try to gain a better understanding of what's happening in our soil but also paying more attention to the fact that tomatoes are heavy feeders and giving them that extra time to provide them with more food Mm -hmm. outside the current soil and so maybe you could just touch a little bit on what that process has looked like this year because you've added in a lot more in terms of the feeding, (laughs) feeding the tomatoes Mm -hmm. than we have in the past.
1: Yeah. Yeah, of course. So, you know, they, tomatoes form symbiotic relationship with mycorrhizal fungi, but also some bacteria that help solubilize, like I said, I mean, I'm beating a dead horse, but help solubilize nutrients in the soil that then the tomato can take up into itself. And so that's like one of the things that is really important is to, is to inoculate your, uh, tomatoes with mycorrhizal fungi, because those fungi on, a, on an order of magnitude of, of tenfold uh, increase the amount of surface area of your tomato roots to help go forage for these elements. Mm. They either they even form an economy with the, the tomato plant and exchange various micronutrients and even macronutrients for sugars that the fungi feed on. So it's this relationship. And if that relationship isn't there, your tomatoes are just not going to grow as, as big. So definitely inoculate them.
0: Was this the first year you inoculated tomatoes? <laughs> yeah, actually. Yeah, and so all that is—it's—it's it's pretty simple. You can just buy a little, a little jar or packet of the inoculant. It gets mixed um, just by the ratio on the package with water, and then you literally take your starts and just dip, dip the soil and roots in it before you plant transplant it into the soil. So yeah,
1: and then we okay. I mean, I mean how much I could talk about like how many pounds per acre that tomatoes need of these macro micronutrients, but like...
0: I was thinking more just like the different applications that you've had to do this year from the foliar spray to what you've added to the soil and then kind of the frequency because we've been doing it more often.
1: For sure. Okay. So in the beginning of the season... You don't want to add all of the nutrition that the plant's going to need for that entire season right at transplant because if you add, the most, uh, if you add that much phosphorus it, right at that point, it's going to tie up a lot of things and it's going to become insoluble pretty quickly, and it's just not—it's just not a great idea. So we added less than half of the actual requirements of that tomato throughout the trajectory of this season in the form of composted chicken manure, feather meal my um, gypsum um, uh, right at transplant basically we prepared the beds and mixed that in and then we broadforked, forked and then we brought the BCS power harrow over those beds to mix all that into the top four inches and then and then we planted and during the first few weeks um, they didn't you know these tomatoes aren't growing extremely fast so they didn't, I mean, they had plenty of nutrition already, Mm -hmm. but as these plant, these plants like tripled in size in the first three weeks. Um, and so as that plant gets bigger and bigger, we started then adding, um, weekly schedule or weekly feedings of, uh, fish hydrolysate and a little bit of, um, unsulfured molasses and then, um, anaerobic bacteria. And we would mix all that. And then we would, And we would do that on a weekly basis. And depending on the week, we applied different or increasing amounts of that fish fertilizer um, to to the soil because that is what's feeding them also the mycorrhizal fungi. They want sugars and proteins and amino acids, and we are feeding the microbial life that is in that soil that then in turn gives that up to the plant. and and in this beautiful economy and exchange and so as that plant gets bigger we were progressively increasing the amount of of pounds of fish fertilizer Mm -hmm. applying to those tomatoes we started at like i think it was like five ounces per two thousand square feet and now we're up to uh 16 ounces of fish fertilizer Uh per week now alongside of that we know that we have various soil disorders really it comes down to that are inhibiting the uptake of a wide variety of micronutrients and even a couple uh, one of the macros being potassium you know we on our on our leaf tests last year there was a quarter of the amount of calcium that was in our plants than it should there should have been there and that was significantly affecting the growth rate of those mm-hmm. plants last year and i just knew that was going to happen this year so by week three, I started to foliar spray these plants with supplemental calcium and other micronutrients, and I'm getting you know quite good at looking at these tomatoes at the leaves, at the growth rates, at the fruit, and even tasting the fruit to see what it needs. And so, de- you know, depends on on the week, but we've been adding um, like zinc and manganese and Epsom salt. And soluble gypsum and even micronized lime. We've been adding um, boron and fulvic acid. We've been adding humic acid to the soil on you know every uh, a monthly schedule. We've been adding uh, what else have we been adding? We've been adding anaerobic or uh, bacteria, excuse me, to actually the underside of the leaves because they then start to live on the phylosphere phylosphere of that leaf and actually pull nitrogen out of the air and provide nitrogen to the plant through the stoma. So we want to try and improve the uh, environment of those leaves for those bacteria. So we've been doing like clearly Mm -hmm. an insane amount of stuff. And now we have, what two thousand pounds of fruit sitting on our vines right now mm-hmm. like it, and, it and works
0: those plants are the cherry tomatoes are what like seven feet tall now they're
1: like a, they're 10 feet tall 10 feet
0: tall <laughs> Yeah, we need to lower um, them actually yeah and so that's i think that's just paints a really cool picture for people that are starting a farm or people that are growing tomatoes at home And of course, it's very different at our scale. We have a greenhouse full of tomatoes. We're not just growing a few plants, but it really does show what can be required for you to get the best growth. I would guess majority of people growing tomatoes at home, they probably don't tend to have 20 foot tall cherry tomatoes by the end of their season and that's totally fine you can still get a decent yield even if you're not trellising them up to 20 feet tall but that's the potential of the plant Hmm. if it is utilizing the nutrients in the soil and receiving the food required and for us especially with the soil problems we've had in our greenhouse which we've learned both through the soil tests that we get each season but also uh, just from witnessing our crops over the past four seasons, um, we just know that they're going to require much more attention.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I wanted to actually go back to when you were talking about like you just saw these raised garden beds laying fallow earlier in this in this podcast. You're looking at me blankly.
0: Yeah, no, because I don't think I was referring... I was just talking in terms of the laying fallow. I was talking about just like someone moving on to new land and how for some people it could be more of a challenge to begin growing food than for others. For example, if you move somewhere that the soil has been fallow, like it's had no growth. I see. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Okay. But so... (laughs) these microorganisms that are living in the soil that form these relationships with your plants, they will die if plants aren't growing in that soil. Mm. And you sometimes, especially in the springtime, you might need to quote-unquote jumpstart your ground. And so that means amending it uh, or inoculating it, rather, with these microorganisms at planting time. Um, And then feeding those microorganisms stuff that your plant's not really taken up, but you're feeding those microorganisms with sugars um, and amino acids and proteins that these things feed off of to build that population Mm. that then can support a plant that produces 40 pounds of tomatoes. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. That's actually a really interesting point to bring up because that does make me think about raised garden beds. And so I guess that would mean that if someone's not growing in their raised bed Year after year, but then also adding in fresh compost and whatever other amendments at the start of the season. If they let that sit for too long, those little (laughs) microbes in there are are going to run out of food. And when you go back to start planting, say two or three years later, you are going to have an even more difficult time if you don't do something to help replenish the food in that soil. Yeah,
1: yeah, nature doesn't lay. doesn't allow a plot of land to lay fallow. It has successions of crops that are, you know, 10 feet tall next to two inch tall plants. There's always, there are always plants growing in that soil unless it's negative 40 degrees outside. But even in the wintertime, there are plants that are Mm -hmm. still alive, even if the ground is frozen that are just laying dormant in that soil. And those bacteria are laying dormant. And then as soon as that soil thaws in the spring, the economy starts again mm-hmm. it gets it doesn't need a kickstart because everything's already there the plants are going to start growing and producing those sugars that the bacteria are waiting for with open mouths and if you have a raised garden bed out there that you're like well i'll 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 plant the garden in june that's like three months of opportunity that you're missing out on on building that soil so just you know you can plant a cover crop or just grow some really early crops or really early season crops so but if you're in a position where it has remained fallow for a while you need to you need to quote unquote jump start Mm -hmm. that that garden bed again yeah
0: yeah that makes perfect sense yeah I think about that like the parallel to the human body, the parallel to a car or old truck that you've left unattended without starting it for years and years, you can't just have an expectation that it's going to do exactly what you want to need it to do immediately without first take, giving it some care.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if you, if you take antibiotics and destroys all of your gut bacteria, don't expect you'd have a good shit right away right like you need you need to feed and repopulate and balance Mm -hmm. the microorganisms that are in your gut in order to then feed you as a person yeah and it's the same thing with our
0: soils Mm -hmm. yeah very interesting
1: so you want to talk about your witchcraft uh, of the day and how you've been killing a ton of birds
0: (laughs) (laughs) so today has been a weird day (laughs) i don't know how i feel about it but um (laughs) <laughs> it, we really we really had the nature channel happening here today. Yeah. Our farm is in a really special place. We have so many bird species Dozens. that come through. We have a herd of elk that's been hanging out recently. We have so many white tailed deer. it's It's really beautiful. It's an amazing little ecosystem that we're in here that's tucked away anyway. Today started uh, um, sitting at our coffee bar having my morning coffee. I was watching this tiny, tiny little bird just hopping around out front and it looked okay, but I was like, weird, birds usually fly. <laughs> <laughs> this little thing would kind of hop around and sort of like try to fly, but just like crash back down to the ground. It looked like it was eating some insects. And I was like, don't oh, know, well, it's having a good time. Uh, it had just rained a bunch, so I figured it was finding some little grubs and things and anyway I went to start our day and I saw it outside. So I got closer to it and realized it was a baby bird that had fallen from a nest. But it seemed to be doing okay. It looked like it was attempting to learn to fly. So I let it be. It created this situation in my mind where I had the realization of how challenging it is to not interfere with nature. <laughs> And we, as farmers, we do plenty of things to manipulate the best growth of our plants. But thinking about the animals um, around the property, it, it's really hard not to dive in and help something out. Like you want to just let nature do its thing and let the circle of life happen. But when I realized it was a baby bird, I was like, oh no, where's its nest? Where's its mom? I wonder if it has food. I wonder if it needs water. I wonder if it's okay. Why isn't it flying? We had to go into town. So, so I let it be. It had kind of like nestled into this little (laughs) indent in the soil of our front flower bed and just was chilling. So I let it be. We went out for a couple hours and came back and the, poor little thing was out of the bed but not far away from where it had been and it was squawking a horrid sound so I went over to go see it and squatted down on the ground beside it and it was squawking and the poor little thing like fell over was laying on its belly kind of like flipped upside down stood back up started coming toward me kind of and I was just watching it, taking a little video, being like, oh, how cute. This poor little baby bird is trying to learn to fly. <laughs> and it fell over and got its head caught in some grass. And then it just keeled over and died.
1: Keeled it, over and died. Keeled yeah. over. <laughs> keeled? Keeled. Keel.
0: Yeah. Huh. And uh, anyway, I felt slightly traumatized. I felt slightly responsible for the death of this little bird. I thought maybe I had scared it to death. I think it was probably unhealthy. And, uh, yeah, it, that, that was just the, the first bird experience. Later in the day, I saw the mom flying in and out of the nest, bringing food. And it led us to think that perhaps this bird, maybe it was unhealthy. Maybe it was the uh, do you call it the run to the liver wh- litter when it comes to birds? <laughs> I don't know. But we thought perhaps it was pushed out of the nest. Yeah. Because the whole time we saw it hanging around, it was very close by its nest. And it was cheeping and making sounds.
1: And the plant, the the mother and father were not Didn't coming. Didn't do a thing. And we were watching the mother and father go back and forth with grubs in their mouth to the nest that they've now nested in our house. But yeah. <laughs> these are nuthatches, by the way. They're really small birds. And so... We, you know, I'm not sure about that bird species, but there's a plethora of bird species that the usually it's the first one that hatches, pushes either out the other eggs or the other, um, other babies, mm-hmm. uh other chicks, whatever, out of the nest, and usually they raise one, one. Mm-hmm. Like for example, I mean, what would be an example of another bird species? Actually, I'm trying. To think. I
0: think. I think eagles will try to do that like if they have two eggs hatch the stronger of the two will try to push the other Mm -hmm. one out of the nest so that it can get more of the food yeah um so that was nature channel experience number Mm -hmm. one number two we have had uh what do you call a group of quail Covey. a covey (laughs) of quail uh, on our property and there was one that nested near one of our old fruit trees and the dogs actually discovered it. Floyd, he would run down, accidentally spook the mom, and then he'd sniff the eggs and sit by them. I don't know if he knew that there was life in them and he was trying <laughs> to protect them or what, um, or waiting for them to hatch. But so there's
1: 16 it. eggs in this clutch. Yeah, yeah. 16 Which
0: eggs. is crazy. I did not know quails would lay that many eggs.
1: I don't even know how many, how that can fit in in a quail. Like even over the course of a, of a week, like yeah. how do they... I just don't get it.
0: Any bird scientists out there that want to come talk to us, let us know. Uh, So anyway, I've been keeping an eye on the eggs because I've never seen a nest that close. And today when I was walking down to go open the greenhouse, I saw the mother fly away and I went over and took a peek and the quails had just hatched and so starting to hatch. yeah, yeah I could see I think I could see about eight at that point in time there was one that was like just outside of the nest uh, maybe the earliest hatcher so it was ready to already start moving and then there were a lot still in the nest um, so I took a quick little video and left them be I could hear mom nearby and so I went and I think within like half an hour when I came back to that nest all those babies were gone. Mm -hmm. I assume they were not eaten. I think that they listen for their mom and go and they're probably all living in all the uh, tree brush that we have down there. Um, But I just thought that was such a cool experience to look in and see them fresh out of their eggs and then to look back and see that they've already gone into that next phase of life where they're Standing and running around following their mom yeah. and hiding.
1: But there was, so there was two, about two eggs left um, mm-hmm. by this time. And uh, you started to watch one actually hatch. Mm-hmm. And it took a long time to get, break through its shell. Yeah. And within 15 or 20 minutes or so, it it essentially just, this one just died as well. Yeah. And it could not, did not have the, the... The chutzpah or the mm-hmm. the the lifeblood or the the elixir yeah. whatever to actually break out of its shell and yeah. and go and start its life it just
0: yeah
1: just didn't 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 make the cut
0: yeah it was so sad I almost cried so there were two eggs completely unhatched like not even starting so I'm curious I'll check back report back yeah. if they do hatch and then this third one At first, I thought it was just some residual feathers from the mother. But then that's when I noticed it was a new baby pushing out. And it made it so close. I sat there and watched as its head popped out. It got a foot out. It would push really hard and then like, like lay back and take a little break and then like push again and crack the shell a bit further apart. And when it was essentially all the way out except for its little bottom half, I was like, okay, I better go do some harvesting. And I went back and looked at it maybe an hour later, and the poor little thing was yeah dead. Yep. Um, yeah, so that was Nature Channel on Fern Lane today. Yeah,
1: there's a, there's a vex on birds right now. Yeah. Or a hex, rather, Yeah. a vex. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so I made sure to replace our hummingbird food today to make sure they're getting some healthy sugar water in addition to all the... Uh, hanging baskets we have on our deck that we see them feeding at but i'm gonna stay away from birds for the rest of the day <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right well anything else you want to talk about oh i did want to talk about one thing that we saw up in in vernon that was fucking wild i've never seen or even thought about this as an agricultural practice but at this uh you know uh, we were at my brother-in-law or your brother's wedding. And you know, congratulations, Mark and Haley. Mm-hmm. But um, we were close to a, a cherry orchard, and we had we got an, inundated with rain um, mm-hmm. just after the ceremony, when we started to have dinner. And Ashley came over to the dinner table. And was like, JJ, you have to ch- come check this out. And so I didn't know what to expect. We walked around um, the the fence. And I could hear a helicopter in the distance. And pretty soon we turned the corner and there's a helicopter hovering like 10 feet above the cherries. And Ashley was telling me that these cherry orchards, they hire helicopter pilots to dry off their cherry plants or cherry trees to, to improve the, the harvestable, harvestable uh, mm. quality um, of the cherries that were getting ready to be harvested. And yeah. I didn't know that they did this. They they spent thousands of dollars an hour to dry off their cherries with a helicopter. I mean, this thing was going back and forth like it was a like it was a tractor. It was going back and <laughs> forth ten feet above hovering, just whooshing away, drying out these cherries. It was yeah. it was wild. Yeah.
0: And so it's I think it's a combination. Farmers I just still don't understand how Maybe we're in the wrong farming business uh, if cherry orchards make enough money to pay helicopters to dry their fruit. But anyway, so I think it it is both for the purpose of um, it helps prevent splitting in the fruit, but then I assume it also helps prevent any sort of mold or mildew from developing. So the Okanagan Valley, it's a prime agriculture valley. It's full of vineyards. It's full of orchards and farms. Um, with how it's situated but it does it, it gets hot in the summer it gets hot it gets humid and there are many many days where there are those late afternoon thunderstorms and so i imagine farmers reach a point where they're like well what on earth do we do all of our fruit is splitting from all this water
1: well why would why would water on it split the cherries
0: um i don't know we'll have to reach out to some farmers uh, but, uh here we go so i just pulled up a news newspaper article or a news article from CBC news says cherries that are nearly ripe have a naturally high sugar content that draw in rainwater causing fruit to swell and delicate skins to split. I see. So okay. interesting. Yeah. Kind of the opposite of radish. Like our radish will start to split if we overwater them. The soil. The soil. I guess yeah. it is kind of the same because they've taken too much from the soil.
1: Yeah, I guess so. Huh. Yeah, it's just like tomatoes as well. Or,
0: yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: So we watched helicopters probably charging $2,000 an hour to blow dry cherries.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So if you ever get your hands on some Okanagan grown cherries and you're appalled by the price, now you know why.
1: Now you know why. So I was, you were telling me about, or I think Steph, your sister was telling uh, us about how most of these cherries are actually being exported to China now because there's a, a growing demand mm-hmm. um in domestically in, in China for for BC and even Chilean cherries. Um and even though that you know China's producing more and more cherries um on a yearly basis, the demand is just still outpacing the supply and so they are paying top dollar um for these BC cherries. And there are some farms out here that literally just don't even sell locally in the Okanagan Valley. They just ship all of their stuff probably gets on a either yeah probably just gets on a truck, goes down to to the Vancouver and just gets sent on ships right out. Who mm. knows? But it's wild. Makes
0: it's, you think about our food system, right? That's for sure.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Well, I think uh, that's a good place to leave it at for today. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends and family. It really just takes a couple of seconds. You can also leave us a review. We appreciate all forms of feedback. Certainly helps us to keep our egos in check.
1: And if you appreciate our work and want to help us succeed, please consider contributing financially. You can do this by visiting patreon.com backslash the sourdough. That's patreon.com backslash the sourdough. You can also follow us on Instagram at sourdough.mt.